Hello, everybody, and welcome to History's Trainwrecks. Quite a lot of history is about men. Up until fairly recently, women have either been seen as doting wives, chaste figureheads, virtuous symbols, or the nation's architect of misery, like in the case of Marie Antoinette or the Empress Livia, wife of Rome's first emperor, Augustus. Powerful female rulers like Isabella of Spain did most of the governing and policymaking, while her husband Ferdinand took all the credit. This was true even during the American Revolution. Most of us have heard of Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, Eliza Hamilton, thanks to the play, Betsy Ross, and others. But our impression of them is as secondary characters, because it's their husbands who made the news, so to speak. In her latest book, Women of the American Revolution, Samantha Wilcoxon brings these characters forward so that we can see them as they actually were and realize how essential they were to the success of the revolution. Samantha, in her book, makes the argument that George Washington would have been far less Washington-y or Washington-esque without Martha. I'm fond of saying that John Adams would, have, have, would not have been much more than a stubborn, cranky, vain curmudgeon without his wife, Abigail. She smoothed out his rough edges. She made him think about things he had not considered, and he knew that she was the partner of his labors. It was Abigail Adams who wrote her husband, John, that he should remember the ladies when declaring independence, reminding him that all men would be tyrants if they could. Tyranny, as recently established by the Declaration of Independence, was bad. Abigail told her husband, if particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. If you're keeping track, Abigail Adams was making the same argument to John that John was currently making to King George III. So instead of me doing my usual thing and making stuff up that I think makes sense, I invited Samantha on this episode to talk about the women of the American Revolution and help us remember the ladies. Hi, Samantha, and welcome. Why don't we Hi. start off? Hi. Why don't we start off by you telling us about yourself and your historical writing and how Women of the American Revolution came about? Hi. Well, first, I just want to thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. This is really fun. Um, and I couldn't agree more with you about John Adams being a favorite historical curmudgeon. I was listening to, I don't remember what episode of your podcast, and you said something like that, and I did laugh out loud. So <laughs> he and Abigail are a perfect pair. Um, as for me, I have always enjoyed studying history, but it took me far too many years to look at this strange obsession that I had as an opportunity rather than just a hobby. So I didn't start writing until about 10 years ago, um, and I published my first historical fiction novel in 2015. That one was about Elizabeth of York, and it ended up kicking off a series that I hadn't really planned on early Tudor era women. So after that, I switched over to American history to write about the Radium Girls of Ottawa, Illinois, and Catherine Donahue in particular. So then I was contacted by Pen and Sword, who is a nonfiction publisher, and you might be picking up that my writing career is a little just sort of wandering around and seeing what will happen next. <laughs> so that's that's what came up next. And I was really, I hadn't even thought about writing nonfiction. And they had actually approached me about writing biographies of, of Tudor era historical figures. But this was also in 2020 when none of us knew when travel or in-person research was going to be possible. And 
I don't live in the UK. I live in Michigan. So, um, so yeah, we, we thought maybe something else would be a better idea. And I was also kind of wanting to stick in US history after writing about the Radium Girls. So we came up with the idea for Women of the American Revolution. And I like to think that I add something to everything that's already out there on the American Revolution with um, a novelist touch to nonfiction. Um, I, one of my goals is always, whether writing fiction or nonfiction, to just help readers connect on a personal level to people of the past and um, kind of feel like they get to know them. Well, and I, that's the impression I had when I read the book. Um, I was caught up in the story and it was only every now and then it would it would occur to me that, oh, you're talking about Martha Washington or Abigail Adams or, you know, historical figures that I had heard of. But I was just kind of engrossed in their story because a lot of it was were things that I didn't know about them before. Like I'd never learned them anywhere else. So that was uh, I think you're absolutely right about being able to connect to them on a personal level, um, because that's what matters. And that's what happens to the men. You know, every mm-hmm. biographer of George Washington, and you know, they they try to get into what they were feeling. And if David McCullough hadn't written his biography of John Adams, I'm not sure I would be so convinced of his curmudgeonliness. Which <laughs> I can't I can't even say his name without adding as almost as an honorific, you know, my favorite historical curmudgeon. Um, <laughs> and I'll be doing that now, too. So thank I know. You. <laughs> but he. He's so adorable uh, in his <laughs> in his curmudgeonliness. <laughs> so, um, but but that's I mean that's the part that I loved about this book and and the historical fiction that I read, um, David McCullough and John Meacham and and writers like that. It's because they're great at telling the story, and that's what is fantastic about this book and and why I wanted you to come on the show. Yeah, so well, thank you. That's that's high praise. <laughs> <laughs> so along those lines, um, it, kind of to mirror my experience, tell us about a woman of the American Revolution that everybody's probably heard of, but make a distinction between maybe the the impression we got in sixth grade versus what she was really like. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know about in sixth grade, but at this point, a lot of people have certainly heard of Eliza Hamilton, um, at least many more than had heard about her before 2015. So I found her really fascinating and inspiring. And I think that others are going to enjoy learning more about her beyond her marriage to Alexander, which of course was quite an adventure in itself, but she did live for another 50 years after his death. So um, we might know her as a sweet, submissive wife, and in many ways that is accurate, but she was also really adventurous and generous and hardworking. Um, Her mother, Catherine Van Rensselaer Schuyler, taught Eliza and her sisters to be charitable and hospitable, and Eliza really lived out this lesson her whole life. We know from the musical that she founded an orphanage, but she also founded a free school. She assisted Dolly Madison with an orphanage in Washington, and she was just really tirelessly involved with philanthropic work throughout her life. Um, she also went on a trip out west, which at that time meant to the wilderness of the Wisconsin Territory, um, but this is when she was 79 years old. And it was to visit her son, William, who had moved out there. So that's quite an undertaking for an elderly lady at the time. 
but you know, she just got on a steamship and headed out. And I just think that Eliza was made of much sterner, courageous stuff than what we think of her. Well, and that's, you know, the story of her going out West when she was 79 years old. I never knew that. Um, and it, it, it seems like it's because once their husbands are out of the picture, their story doesn't really seem to get covered very much. And right. so when Alexander Hamilton um, went off on his duel, well, that was it. And then they they kind of parenthetically say, oh, yeah, Eliza also lived another half century or whatever and did some stuff. And, right. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, I think I read somewhere else that she in, in the 1840s, you know, the presidents, whoever was president at the time, they all wanted to come and talk to her because she knew all the the famous figures of the revolution. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, again, even in that context, she was just a conduit to right. to the men of the revolution. And nobody ever bothered to say, hey, did you go to Wisconsin when you were nearly 80 years old? Because that, that just didn't occur to him. So, right. <laughs> and, and also, there's also a story in your book where I think it was a band of pitchfork and torch-wielding loyalists surrounded the Schuyler Mansion. Um, and and it was the women who essentially fought them off. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. When Eliza, before she was married. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, the same way that we learn about young Alexander Hamilton in the play or the biography about, you know, surviving the hurricane and and coming to America as a as an orphan. At the same time, his future wife was was telling a bunch of loyalists, uh, you know, shooting out the window and 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 uh, getting them to uh run away from her mansion i mean it's just as exciting it's just and it shows just as much about her characters as his story did about him but i didn't know any of this until i picked up your book so that's a really good point because you know like i said we do think of eliza as well an 18th century wife which she was and she was very devoted to alexander but yeah, you do see how she was also a very good fit for him in in some of the things that are in her history that kind of line up with, you know, his adventurous spirit too. Right. And I think, you know, Abigail Adams is another of my favorites uh, from this era because John had the luxury of getting on a boat and going off places or going to Philadelphia. And she had to raise the kids, run the farm. Um, you know, buy real estate, which I didn't know she was a real estate uh, um, uh, titan of industry there. She mm-hmm. had uh, had the kids in, uh, inoculated for smallpox uh, all mm-hmm. by herself. And, right. um, and, and so when you look at what the founding generation had to do, I think you could make an argument that Abigail's job was a lot harder than John's. Even <laughs> in some ways, for sure. <laughs> I mean, she didn't have to go to the Dutch for a loan. But at the same time, she, you know, lived in essentially Boston while the British were attacking it. So, um, you know, and I think that, again, these are the kinds of stories that that we don't hear about. Um, Speaking of which, you also talk about women in the revolutionary era whose stories have been mostly missed by historians. Um, And do you have of those? Do you have a favorite? And can you tell us about her? Um, there, I do try to fit a few of those in there. And of course, there's women that I missed too. 
But um, one that I I really did want to include once I once I learned about her was Ona Judge. And uh, she's actually a great example of one who's getting a little more attention just recently. There's a new biography out about her and a novel that I think came out um, within the last year or so as well. Um, so Ona was a young black woman enslaved by the Washingtons. And in 1796, while George was serving as president in Philadelphia, she escaped. So this was a pretty awkward situation for the Washingtons and George especially, who was always really aware of appearances. It's one of the things that made him good at what he did. And he was always um, just really thoughtful about how things were going to impact his reputation and how history was going to judge the things that he did. So um, he's the president of a nation founded on liberty and freedom. So he didn't want to be too public about hunting down an escaped slave. And then on the other hand, Martha could never quite understand why enslaved members of the family, as she thought of them, would want to run away. Um, from her point of view, why choose an uncertain freedom and likely poverty over a comfortable home at Mount Vernon? And of course, to us, this is a surprising blind spot considering all that she had recently experienced. So representatives of the Washingtons did locate Ona, but George had been clear that he didn't want any big scenes made. So she refused to come quietly. Um, despite promises of future freedom, Ona didn't, wasn't willing to leave with these agents that had tracked her down. Um, they tried to bargain with her. They tried to trick her, but she outsmarted them. She hid and moved further north, and she did actually uh, own a judge, got married, and had children, and lived out the remainder of her days as a free American. And that's that's why I love her story, because in a certain sense, she knew what she wanted and what she didn't want, and that was pretty clear. Mm -hmm. um, she wasn't she wasn't hoodwinked by, well, we'll set you free, you know, someday. Um, <laughs> right. Like, you know, Thomas Jefferson and the Hemming family, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he kept promising their freedom, but he was so much in debt, he couldn't really part with them. Um, mm -hmm. And so she seems to have figured this whole situation out pretty quick. And I think one of the other things that she seemed to know is that George didn't want publicity on this. And I, right. it, it, it feels like she leveraged the situation mm -hmm. to her advantage, which is remarkable, um, mm -hmm. considering her upbringing and, and her enslavement. So, um, you know, that that was a great story uh, as well. And, and so my big question, because I'm a history nerd myself, is <laughs> is like, how do you go about doing research to find out? Because you're making a real connection to the people, not just the historical figurehead, the statuary, as it were. Mm -hmm. And so how do you do research that that gets you into the mind of your subjects? And and did anything surprise you? Did you find any out anything that really, um, you know, knocked you back on your heels when you were doing your research? Mm -hmm. Well, I like to perform my research, like you said, as just trying to get as close to historical figures as I can. Um, I love reading letters and visiting historic homes, any kind of historic sites that still exist that um, are related to the people I'm writing about. Um, my goal is always to discover more of the personalities and the motivations underneath 
the dates and events that are familiar to us. So, you know, we've talked a bit about John and Abigail Adams. You know, we know they spent years apart despite what was a really close relationship and that they did that to serve their country. But we can read their letters and discover more about how did they cope with that and at what times were one of them worried or the other one scared or, you know, there's times where they write about, you know, this just isn't worth it. So what drove them to sacrifice so much? And in the end, did they think it was worth it? And in their case, they have left behind just mountains of writing, which is wonderful as testimony of their journey. But sometimes people are a little more difficult to discover. Um, I do find myself, especially when I was writing about Tudor era women. So going back a lot further, um, reading a lot of biographies of men to try find little tidbits of information about the women around them. Thankfully, with women of the revolutionary era, we do have, at least with some of them, a lot of letters or diaries, newspaper stories. So there's there's a little more available. So that's helpful. And it seems like there was a lot of um, letter burning. Uh, like I, it, Martha burned all of George's letters. Um, and so it seemed like on the one hand, you've got John and Abigail who are, we have to record every every minute of every day for future history. And then there's Martha who's like, nope, it all goes in the fire. Um, right. Yeah, unfortunately, it was common for people to burn their letters at that time. And actually, in a lot of Abigail's letters, she does say, you know, please burn this. And, you know, she makes excuses about her writing being poor and that kind of thing. But thankfully, John didn't always listen. So we have a lot of those letters. So. <laughs> Wait a second. Are you telling me that John Adams didn't always listen to what people <laughs> told? I find that impossible to believe. Right. Um, so, but, but in that context, I do like to think that maybe he had respect for her, that he had res mm -hmm. enough respect for Abigail to say, you know what? You're not a bad writer. And our conversation, much like his his later letter writing campaign with Jefferson, mm -hmm. is is historically significant, and we should just let people have access to them, mm -hmm. and and just this is who we are, and that's how it's going to be. And to me, that's part and parcel of being a curmudgeon. You know, it's like <laughs> this is who I am. I've got nothing to hide, and if you want to know what I think, here it is. There's no. Mm -hmm. um, there is no curtain to look behind because right. here I am. You know, much like Winston Churchill walking naked through the White House, he's got nothing <laughs> to hide. Um, and and so, you know, it's that mm -hmm. impulse I think that got us this this collection of letters between the two of them. And of mm -hmm. course, in there, you know, Abigail Adams talks about Martha Washington and and some of these other figures who maybe weren't so forthcoming in their right. correspondence. So. You know, I, the more I think about it, the more I, I think we owe John and Abigail quite a debt from uh, just keeping track of everything during this time. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, and uh, Mercy Otis Warren is another female who wrote a lot and actually wrote one of the earliest histories of the American Revolution. So there are a few women out there writing and uh, giving us a little bit different point of view of uh, events. And didn't didn't John Adams engage in a little feud with Mercy Otis Warren at one point? Weren't they? <laughs> he they were, did. He he did was not the biggest fan of how he was portrayed in her history, even though they were friends. She thought she was being um, unbiased, and 
he thought she was attacking him. So not that he was, you know, sensitive to criticism. Of course not. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) So one day you'll have to do a book about John Adams. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's in your future. (laughs) Um, so here's a question. If you were in charge of the history writing that gets done in America, what would you have historians do differently when talking about women from history? Okay, so that's a big question. And I do think that all historians have kind of their own take and their own way of writing, their own focus, which overall is a good thing um, to give us different points of view. But um, I guess what I would say that would probably come as a surprise to some people is that I would really just like to see continued study of how women in history truly felt and thought. I've seen, especially in historical novels, which of course is a little bit different than in nonfiction, but I've seen a trend where people seem to want to portray historical women as having all of the thoughts and feelings of a 21st century woman, except they're repressed by the society they live in. And I just find that approach, first of all, a little arrogant, but it also just deprives us of the opportunity to learn from who these women really were, not who we wish they would have been. So we've talked a lot about Abigail, and she has been called a feminist for some of the words that you've quoted today. But we can't leave out other statements that Abigail made in that very same letter where she says, Regard us then as beings placed by providence under your protection and in imitation of the supreme being, make use of that power only for our happiness. We really can't deny that Abigail is encouraging John to include legal protection for women. Mostly she's talking about women who are abused and neglected because she sees it as the duty of upright men like John, to hold accountable those men who do not care for their wives and daughters as they should. So she's not fighting for women's rights the way we think of women's rights. She's thinking of men protecting all women in the way that some of these bad men aren't doing, if that makes sense. That does, Um, yeah, that makes sense. So we can learn, I think, much more from Abigail and other women of the past if we strive to understand their point of view rather than reforming it in our own image. So striving for accuracy in general, I think is important to keep in mind, even though it seems obvious, whether we're talking about historical figures and their mindsets or their actions, we should seek truth rather than what we wish was true. So when I see people, you know, insisting that Sybil Ludington made her Paul Revere-like ride or that Anna Strong was definitely Agent 355, it just disappoints me a little bit that people are more interested in winning an argument or reforming history as their preferred story rather than digging for the truth. I mean, and maybe both of those things are true, but I think it's much more interesting and useful to consider all the evidence and learn as much as we can rather than just write history the way we like it. Well, and that's, you know, that's a hard lesson in itself, too, because, um, in fact, I did a a podcast episode with Jerry Landry, who hosts the Presidencies of the United States podcast, because in my historical reading, I developed quite a dislike for Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and so what you're saying here about the truth, uh, you know, I approach that from one side, like, what is the truth about Thomas Jefferson? And I 
came to the conclusion that he was just a big old jerk and a hypocrite. And <laughs> but that's not how you're supposed to do things. So I, Jerry, being an expert on presidents, I I had him come on the show and it's like, all right, tell me something good about Thomas Jefferson. And the thing I got from that is, is that these historical figures were not perfect. They were all flawed. You know, they had they had flaws. They had greatness. And and mm -hmm. it's easier. It's better for us to appreciate the whole package, warts and all, than just the part that we uh, aspire to. Absolutely. So I think I think you're making a, a, a great point here. Um, so. Anything else that you'd like to talk about? I know you've got a new project going. I've seen from Facebook and uh, I think it's fascinating. And of course, I'm a huge fan of Alexander Hamilton, which puts me at odds with all the Jeffersonians um, <laughs> <laughs> because Alexander Hamilton and I have the same birthday. And whenever um, whenever I remind my wife about that, having seen the play, she's like, yeah, I can see that. I can see you being all <laughs> full of yourself and, and thinking that whatever it is, sure, you can just do it. Qualifications <laughs> notwithstanding. So I'm much more of a Hamiltonian. Um, and so so your current project is Hamilton adjacent. So tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. So partly from writing Women of the American Revolution and especially focusing on Eliza Hamilton, I just really grew to admire her. And also I will admit to getting a bit obsessed when I found James Hamilton. So James is the third son of Alexander and Eliza. And he wrote his reminiscences in 1869. So after the Civil War, he was born in 1788, so Constitutional Convention time, and lived until 1878. So a very long time. His life parallels America's entire early Republic era. And he left this some like 600 pages of reminiscences. And it's it's a really hodgepodge mix of um you know, a little bit of personal stuff. It's mostly him recording his correspondence with um, just different politicians of the time. He served as temporary secretary of state to Andrew Jackson. So, but it also, he includes just a lot of his thoughts on policy, kind of this is what they should be doing sort of thing. So it's really interesting. He's, I, I find him fascinating. And I'm I'm finding all sorts of interesting little connections that he had and quips that he makes. And so I, I'm writing a biography about him. I don't know if I even said that part. I just got so excited to talk about <laughs> James. And um, so hopefully my readers will enjoy learning about him as much as I do. And of course, that does include lots of memories about his mom and dad and just surprising number of connections that he has with a lot of the names that are familiar to us throughout that period, but we don't necessarily think of what Alexander and Eliza's kids were doing. So I, I think I'm finding him to be a really admirable blend of his father's intellect and his mother's willingness to serve. So um, I hope that readers will find him interesting too. And this project also helps people see how the American Revolution was really just the beginning and we still had so much more to figure out well and i i think that's true too um you know because the same way that it feels like we stopped telling the story of the wives when their husbands 
depart the scene. But there's also not a lot of coverage of the kids. And Mm -hmm. unless they, in their own respects, uh, distinguish themselves, but it always seems like they're still somehow perceived to be less than, you know, like John Quincy Adams and really all the, all the Adams boys from there down. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and, you know, Alexander Hamilton's kids, it's just, it's interesting to me how whoever the major historical figure was shines so bright that everybody else is left in shadow. And (laughs) so uh, that's why I'm really excited about your biography of James Hamilton, because this is the kind of stuff because we also if you're if you're a dabbler in history, you get to the end of the revolution and maybe the Constitutional Convention, then you're out until the Civil mm-hmm. War. And uh, and the same thing when you're done when you're done after Appomattox and Lincoln's assassination, you're like, OK, and then you're you're you tune out until Teddy Roosevelt comes along and <laughs> um, or I do anyway. But, uh-huh. but no, but, you're absolutely right. We skip from big event to big event and we don't often consider how did we get from here to there and right me that's a really great story well because you know unfortunately when it comes to government and policy and all that it's the boring stuff in between that really accomplishes your long-term national objectives Mm -hmm. um you know it wasn't so the civil war was you know makes for a great movie but it was it was reconstruction and jim crow and all the stuff that came after that 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 you know formed the nation we have now and right. it was you know like the cold war uh you know world war ii was super exciting then we got into this cold war with the soviets and it was a bunch of spy novels but it was it was boring policy across <laughs> 50 years 70 years that finally brought it down and so you know the part of the early republic like once jefferson won the presidency in 1800 we're like okay it's going to get boring now but that's mm-hmm. where that's where the country solidified and 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 became stable right. uh, to a point. So it's it's biographies like you're writing about James Hamilton. It's also like the writings of Henry Adams um, that fill in those gaps. So I think it's it's absolutely necessary, and it's it's bound to be far more fascinating than we might think. It's uh, you know it it happened in one of those boring interregnum periods. It'd be like you know I, I, learning more about Rutherford B. Hayes, but <laughs> but I went to I went to his library. I learned quite a lot about Rutherford B. Right. Hayes, and he was not a boring guy, and he did mm-hmm. a lot of important things. And we kind of skip over that because he's just somewhere between Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt. So, um, mm-hmm. so I think that this is a great project. I can't wait to read this book. Thank you. Yeah, I've been just really astonished to see how many times somebody mentions that they're worried about some state seceding or, you know, something like that. We think that the only states that ever even thought about that were when the South really did secede in the 1860s. And it seems like through the entire early republic, people are thinking, well, but if we do this is the Northeast going to secede or the West going to secede. <laughs> well, I, I never really fully appreciated how much that was just a constant thought in people's minds. So, yeah. Well, and I didn't, I, I, you know, even from reading your book, I was, uh, there was a part where it's like, well, maybe it's time for new England to just secede from the union and go at separate ways. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. That was unexpected. But then, you know, a, a pack of wintry curmudgeons got together and said, we're done with this little experiment. That doesn't surprise me. It's just because it wasn't it wasn't the big one. It kind of yeah. just glossed over. 
But, you know, why if if one section of the of the country can secede for regional disputes, why can't New England? So it's just, uh, you know, the, the cool thing for me is that the more I read, the more of these little things I find out. And then when you start to put it all together, it's just really fascinating. Um, so let's let's wrap up. Uh, I'd like you to tell us all about your books and where to find them and how to follow you around on social media like I do in a non creepy way. Uh, just to figure out what you're doing and what your projects are. Because uh, you've also got a blog um, that goes pretty regularly uh, where I discovered you were stalking James Hamilton through history. So uh, so uh, tell us uh, tell us where to get your books and, and, like I said, how to follow you around. Okay, sure, yeah. So Women in the American Revolution is, that one is available at pretty much all your major booksellers, um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Book Depository. Um, it's also actually just the, within about the last week available an audiobook too. So um, I know audiobooks.com and Audible, um, maybe some other places too. Um, my other most recent one that we didn't really talk about is But One Life. That's a biographical fiction about Nathan Hale. And that one is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, so is Luminous, which that's the one that's about the Radium Girls. And then all my earlier ones, the early Tudor era series, that's called Plantagenet Embers. That's pretty much Amazon exclusive. So all the books can be found there. My blog, it's just my name, samanthawilcoxon.blogspot.com. And yes, I do like when I get excited about my research, I usually throw it on there um, or on Facebook. I share lots of little tidbits on there too. So uh, my name on there is Plantagenet Embers and I'm on Twitter, Instagram, really anywhere you can find me there. If you search for my name, I hopefully come up. So. Okay. Well, I'm going to put, I'm going to put links in the show notes uh, okay. and on all the various Facebook pages. Um, and of course now I, uh, you know, I, you had posted in your blog, little tidbits of the Nathan Hale book, um, mm -hmm. and the radium girl book. And I was like, you know, I need to buy those and then promptly forgot about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad, I'm glad you reminded me cause I have to uh, go get those two for sure. So again, thanks for coming on the show and, and helping me remember the ladies because, um, I have quite a lot of friends on Facebook who are like, hey, love your podcast. Uh, a lot of testosterone over there. Do you think maybe <laughs> you could tell a story about, uh, you know, a woman? And my only defense is, is that since my show is about historical train wrecks who are, you know, mostly gigantic, egotistical maniacs who fell from a great height, they are demographically mostly men. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> be, yeah, because, you know, women just don't seem to screw up as big as the men did. <laughs> Um, or at least as, as, uh, you know, big and large. And, and, uh, from my perspective, it's like, like when I look at Douglas MacArthur, I'm like, oh my God, dude, seriously. <laughs> and I just can't see most, uh, most reasonable women doing that. <laughs> so, but, but I am definitely, uh, going to make more of an effort in the future. So I'm glad that, uh, you came on the show and I'm looking forward to whatever it is you got going on next. All right. Thanks so much. I'm so grateful to Samantha Wilcoxon for coming on the show and talking about women of the American Revolution. I highly recommend that book. And now that I know about all her other books, I'm going to go read those too.
Links to everything Samantha will be in the show notes and on our social media pages so that you can find her and follow her around, just like I do. On our next episode, we dig into something I found out while I was doing my research on General Charles Lee. After he got captured in December of 1776, everybody in America was sad, thinking, oh my God, there goes the only general who we think can ever win a battle against the British. Sorry, George. Wait till you surprise the Hessians in Trenton, and maybe everybody will change their minds. But in the meantime, everyone saw the loss of General Charles Lee as almost a mortal blow to the revolution. So up in Rhode Island, an American lieutenant colonel decided that what we really needed was a British general of some heft to trade for Charles. And so he found one. And then he kidnapped him. Stay tuned for I'll Trade You a General. <laughs>